Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangeley. With me as always, my co-host and Rangeley's founder, Chris Demuth. It is Tuesday, November 15th, and today is 13F Day, so we're going to spend most of our time today talking about 13Fs, and then at the end, if we've got a little leftover time, we will talk about how unions are using apps to target Walmart workers now. Uh, so before we go to 13Fs, just a reminder on what the 13F is. You know, Once a quarter, any investor who manages about $150 million or more has to file with an SEC the, a list of all of their positions. Uh, the data is a little bit stale. You know, People are filing for September 30th data today, so they could have bought or sold positions since then. But uh, 13Fs in general are widely watched to see what kind of the world's biggest investors are up to and see uh, prelude to what at- positions big activist investors are starting to accumulate to say, oh, this could have someone go activist on it in the near future. Uh, so, Chris, this quarter, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway were actually unusually active. So we'll definitely have to talk about them at some point. But I will leave it up to you if you want to start with Berkshire or if you want to go with some other interesting things you're seeing in the filings. You know, 13Fs are useful, but it requires a little bit of qualification. It's especially useful when we're talking about long positions, not short, simple positions, not ones with complex hedging strategies, and fundamental, ideally people with relatively concentrated strategies, people with super diversified ones with pages and pages. Yeah, good. you know, like some people say like, oh, Vanguard acquired a position in the stock. It's like, well, Vanguard's an ETF. Like they're not really making a bet. Right. Or if uh, a famous quantitative hedge fund acquired a position, they might only keep it for, you know, 20 minutes or something. So you, you can't read much into those. It's really the big fundamental investors and, you want to look at. Exactly. We love all of our listeners and most of our commenters, but for some reason, the most tedious comment we got on anything to do with Berkshire is it's not Buffett, it's Ted or Todd. And, and, and I don't know why whenever Berkshire comes up, like somebody's just in a three-point stance to be the first person, and now it's about the 75th person to say this. So I should caveat our conversation, uh, and we'll still get the comment, even yeah. after making fun of it, that uh, that this easily could be a Ted or Todd position, not necessarily Warren Buffett. We refer to Warren Buffett because he's in charge of Berkshire Hathaway. He works there. Uh, but, uh, but they've been buying airlines. Yep, so they've been buying airlines, and it as you said, it's probably a Ted or Todd position. Those are his two lieutenants who he brought on to manage about, I think it's $10 billion each at this point. Uh, given the size, it was probably them, but uh, we have no confirmation that it was them at this point. It could have been Warren. Uh, but they've bought up a big basket of almost a billion dollars each in a couple of airlines, which mm-hmm. was kind of surprising to me. American, Delta, United, Southwest. And I'll let you dive into why that's surprising and everything. Well, Warren Buffett said that if a capitalist had been president Kitty Hawk, he should have shot Orville right down uh, because it's such a bad business. Yep. And look, we, we mentioned his poor investment in U.S. Air on a previous podcast. And Buffett even said in his 2007 letter, I regret making that investment. And he he called himself an Airaholic and said he had a hotline he'd call if he ever thought about investing in an airline again. And he actually used airlines as a whole to describe what the worst type of investing business is. So it's very surprising to see him to dive into a basket of these stocks. Uh, last one, net the NetJets investment actually has worked out pretty poorly too. So that's other airline investment. But uh, I, I'll let you dive into why you think he went with a basket approach and why you think he did it. 
I should start by saying I don't know. Um, maybe, 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 you know, gosh, I would like to say that Buffett, uh, in, uh, personally, but Berkshire generally, they're really bottoms-up fundamental analysts. I don't think they do things based on an overall commodity bet or macro bet, but it could have something to do with their view of jet fuel cost structure or something about that's that's more general to the industry than specific to one of these names. Yeah, so look, jet uh, cheaper fuel has definitely come down and cut costs. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the only other time I remember Buffett making kind of a basket bet was in 2007. He bought into the railroads. And at the time, a lot of people said something very similar to what we're saying. Uh, you know, what is he doing? Historically, railroads have been an awful investment. They're capital intensive. They don't really turn a profit. Railroads are in bankruptcy every five years or something. Uh, but Buffett saw that the entire industry had consolidated. I think at that point there were kind of seven big, uh, seven big railroad lines. It consolidated to the point where it was going to be profitable going forward. And as he called it when he bought BNSF in uh, 2010, investing in railroads was an all-in bet on the American economy going mm-hmm. forward. And he might be saying, look, at this point, kind of the top four airlines, which are the ones he invested in, control two-thirds of the market, I think it is. And he might say, hey – They've consolidated to the point where now they're going to be rational in pricing. Fuel costs have come down, so their costs have coming down. Their supply rationale is going to be disciplined going forward. And maybe he's making an all-in bet on the future of kind of the American consumer traveling at this point. Uh, with the railroads, uh, my recollection was that both he and uh, Cascade, the uh, Bill Gates, the, I think, the Bill Gates yep. uh, partnership, had made a big investment around the same time. There were also a couple uh, technological changes. You don't think of railroad and technology, but they were double stacking. They had gotten a lot of infrastructure improvements behind them, so that they were going to be able to run a lot more concentrated loads. Uh, is there something like that here? Is there something about the infrastructure? Something about wow, we've really figured out who owns the slots. I mean, the slots at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to be uh, changed that much. And these are the guys uh, that control it. Yeah. And then the only other thing I'll mention is uh, with the railroads, you know, 2007 is when he started buying them. And Mm -hmm. it ended with him selling all of his positions to buy BNSF in 2010. Here, I think if you think about Southwest, who he's talked very favorably Mm -hmm. about their uh, co-founder and currently, I think, chairman or emeritus chairman, uh, he's ta- he's compared him very favorably to Sam Walton, and if you think about Southwest's quirky culture, low cost culture, I think if he's really enamored with airlines, you have to think at some point Southwest is a perfect Warren Buffett style buyout target. Absolutely. Yep. Oh, uh, let's see. The, the other big thing that Warren Buffett did is I believe he sold about eighty percent of his Walmart position during the quarter. You know, I, I've met, we've mentioned a few times on the podcast. It's interesting to compare Walmart today to kind of Sears in the eighties and ni- and early nineties. This big corporate giant that was doomed and just didn't quite realize it yet. Uh, do you think this is Warren Buffett saying Walmart is in effect doomed? Amazon has killed them, and they just it's going to take another five or ten years for them to realize, or do you think it's something else? It could be that. Gosh, I mean, you know, I look at this. He, uh, in his earlier iteration of complaints about the airlines, one of his big complaints is strong labor unions and commodity pricing. And then all of a sudden, here he's pulling out of something that has really avoided a lot of the labor problems that mm-hmm. other competitors have had. But yeah, no, I just think that I, I, my guess is he's looking at this as kind of the last big competitor standing that hasn't yet been murdered by Amazon, but is in their crosshairs. Yep. And, and look, I think we've seen some stuff that Walmart at this point, a lot of their their last standing competitive advantage relates to 
selling groceries and selling items through food stamps, which you can't do online. And Amazon is moving heavily into groceries. And at some point, the regulation hopefully has to change to allow something with food stamps done online or in an easier form. So maybe he's looking at that and saying, look, they're, they're on their last competitive legs versus online. When he talks about ketchup and gum and Coke, he usually says, I think most frequently 10 years, but he says, you know, I want something that I can think about the economic value in, say, a 10-year from now increment. I don't think that you can say that about Walmart right now. Yeah, it's tough to imagine. You know, Walmart's even, they're pulling back on building new stores. I think they're going to be flat on new stores for the first time ever, or maybe it's only like they're building a couple this year. But it's tough to really think 10 years from now, these giant you know, hundreds of thousands of square feet stores that Walmart does. Is that really how people are going to want to shop going forward? And I think we've talked about this on the podcast, but interesting you talked about the labor point. Let's keep that in mind for our next segment. But before we go there, is there anything else in the 13Fs today? And they're kind of still pouring in. Was there anything else that caught your eye or anything? Oh, just uh, surprise you out of uh, left field. Um, I was interested in Elliot's uh, substantial investment in the for-profit prisons. Oh, the for-profit prisons. And that was interesting because... I, did we, we mentioned that on this podcast, I, I think. I can't remember. I think we've ta- danced around as a, it. But as, a, as a Trump trade. Yeah, in, in late August, I believe it was, they really crashed on the news <laughs> that uh, the DOJ was going to was recommending that the federal government no longer use uh, for-profit prisons. And then, as you said, it, Trump got elected, and they've really run because a lot of people think he's going to uh, reverse that ruling. So it's interesting to think, did they start buying before? Or knowing Elliot, I would have to guess they probably started buying right after that big crash, and they're probably way up on their position. So that's that certainly an interesting guess. one. That yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. So, anything else on activism, or do you want to turn to Walmart? I think that's uh, that. That was the one that really caught my eye. You know, earlier on, especially when you had uh, positions that you were pretty familiar with, you can kind of kind of catch up on things that might be activist targets. But uh, let's go to Walmart. Okay, so let's go to Walmart. So uh, on Monday, the labor group R Walmart released uh, the Work It app. And uh, it's just kind of a funny name now that I say it out loud. It sounds more like a dance app than a uh, labor union app. But uh, Walmart's instructing their employees not to download the, download it. They say this is just uh, the the R Walmart's group's way of trying to get all this employee information to try to get them to join a union. Uh, but it, I just wanted to mention it because it's kind of interesting to see this battle between unions and employers. Traditionally, it's been unions. They go to stores. They pick it. They try to get people to d- join through kind of uh, mail-based things. And now it's using an app to get data and then using that data to try to convince them to join very interesting to talk about that. So I'll turn it over to you well, to let. Yeah. I'll say is that, and I don't own any Walmart directly, but as a Berkshire holder, and we still own some Walmarts, I kind of bristle at the name our Walmart. No, it's actually our Walmart. <laughs> you, you, you people want to organize it, and you would like prices for labor that are above market prices for labor. Uh, when capitalists and business owners like prices that are higher than market prices, that is a criminal antitrust violation. When they want uh, prices for services, for the labor services, is higher than market prices. That's legal, but it's still not yours. Uh, in any event, yeah, no, Work It is an app uh, based on IBM uh, Watson technology. Um, so I don't know if we could actually bid uh, higher for Watson uh, against uh, Work It uh, uh, to uh, come up with a lower price that they can come <laughs> up with. But uh, yeah, no, it's very interesting. They're kind of uh, trying to uh, enter the 21st century, although uh, the uh, labor unions uh, have had a big problem, especially the private sector labor unions, a higher and higher percentage are uh, the very well-organized public 
uh, uh, public sector. And uh, as that becomes more the focus of the labor movement, it really becomes less connected to workers in the private sector. Yeah, so I think there were two things here. Like, uh, And my big takeaway was, you know, we talked about this in our podcast, I think it was October 18th. So mm-hmm. just last month, we talked about Walmart is going through a strategy where they're actually raising their minimum yeah. wages and increasing pay to workers to try to make it a better workplace and make it more attractive to get a better workforce. And if Walmart is raising wages of their own volition and people are realizing higher paid workforce equals better workforce equals more profits like what do you really need a union for like if if walmart's already way above minimum wage why is a union trying to unionize and say oh pay even further above market like it just doesn't like what is their purpose in the world at this point these these are people who if you need that organization it's kind of a good indicator that it's a fairly precarious job yeah you know i have children and i would tell them if they were going into a certain line of work you should do something where the market kind of can support the wages that you're seeking not something where you need to use pressure to uh force the counterparty to pay um but you know it's sort of antiquated i think that they have a lot of problems they're gonna have more problems under the new uh nlrb the new uh uh, labor board uh that's gonna have a very different outlook on on them um but uh yeah no it's gonna change a lot yeah uh (laughs) i used to work right by the trump tower and Uh this was before he was running for politics but there would be uh there would be union picketers outside his building or one of the buildings right next door basically once a month and you have to just wonder how often the union for sisters are going to be out there like going for because now, now i should say the flip side is that the unions often do the organizers often do use uh union workers for the professional protests, so yeah. that they're they're hired and they're they're worked uh, working on that. Uh, in in this past election, though, the funny thing is, is a lot of the actual individuals were individually Trump voters, so yeah. they'll be holding up signs, kind of protesting <laughs> the person. Not only in many cases that they didn't vote in the election, but in some cases they actually voted for the person they are now professionally being paid to picket. Uh, so it's yeah. It's, uh, yeah, and, and you know, when you think about it, like, I don't believe I've ever heard of someone trying to unionize, like, the Amazon workforce or anything. And if you think about it, like, if we're talking about Walmart being this almost, maybe not dying yet, but someone who's kind of endangered from the competition through specifically Amazon, but online shopping in general, like, hiring a unionized worse workforce is literally killing themselves, yeah. right? Like, you're just giving yourself more inflexibility, a higher cost structure against an online shopping experience that is already maximally flexible and already is lower cost than you. Like if you unionize and you, you put yourself with a lot more fixed cost workers, a lot uh, more rules around what your workers can and can't do hiring, firing, like it's just, it's just a death blow. And it, I just can't understand why, I just can't understand why unions think that Walmart should be unionized. And systems that can at least be coherent, that are very high of fixed cost, trying to switch to low fixed cost, the, 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 the murderous part of that is the transition. And so when you already have a competitor like Amazon that's already where you want to go, you know, you buy Jet.com, yeah. you try, you see the writing on the wall, you try to make that change, but your cost structure is what kind of, it's like an anchor that keeps holding you back. You know, and, and the Jet.com acquisition is something else that was kind of like in the back of my mind when we talked about Warren Buffett selling out of Walmart. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I wonder, so I, I thought, I think most people think they did Jet.com as an acquihire to get a really good retailer who had beat Amazon yeah. at something. Yeah, that's right. But, I, you know, I wonder if Warren Buffett thought the first line of thinking we mentioned where he was like, oh, Sears, 
Walmart is Sears of 20 years ago and Amazon's killed them. Or if he saw like, oh my God, these guys are so desperate. They're doing $3 billion aqua hires to get jet.com. Like, I just can't support that type of capital allocation. Maybe it's a combination of both, but I just wonder what it, what was kind of the final straw that made him sell out of this massive position so quickly. I don't know. All right. Well, <laughs> we don't have to know. He he is the maestro for a reason. We don't have to have all the answers for him. Uh, so that's all the time we have for today. Just before we hit our disclosures, a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, the best way to get more of them is to recommend us to a friend and get them to start listening. The more listeners we have, the more likely we are to do more of these podcasts. Uh, disclosures. None for me. Chris, I think you mentioned you're long a little Berkshire. This week, happily long a little Berkshire. And uh, it, it, he, he wasn't philosophically for this new Trump era, but it's working out very well for Mr. <laughs> Buffett so far. Uh, one of the things I liked last week, there was an article on a guy who was like, uh, the day before the election, I'm so scared Trump's going to win. I've sold all of my stocks and gone into 10-year treasuries or something because those are super safe. <laughs> and it, it just shows the difficulties of the market. Like he was right that Trump was going to win, but it turned out he bought into 10-year treasuries have just gotten crushed on the expectation of higher inflation under Trump. And stocks have run up like crazy. So he cost himself 10 or 15 percent, even though he was right in what was going to happen. It just shows the difficulty of forecasting in the stock market. Oops. <laughs> okay, so that's all the time we have for today. We will talk to you guys probably on Thursday.